If you'll take your Bible and turn to John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17 will be our text this morning. And I think it would uh, do us well to uh, remember a little bit about this particular passage by looking back at the, the subject of that which came before. You know, when a subject continues to rise, it just keeps coming back to the surface in any passage. Our antennas should go up as we're reading, as we're studying, as we're thinking about that passage. And we should begin to focus on the meaning of the passage. It should be our aim to understand why this particular topic keeps coming back up, whether it be in Christ's teaching or whether it be in the writings of the writers. You know, as we uh, look at this sermon series on the Holy Spirit and what He has given to us to do and who He is, that the Lord laid out for us in the Upper Room Discourse, John, beginning in John 13, at the washing of the feet of the disciples and going all the way through chapter 16, we get this secondary, though it's slightly secondary, idea which rises to the surface over and over again. You might have already noticed it. That subject almost was the subject of this eight-week series. And we could go back and preach eight weeks on this secondary subject out of these same verses. That subject is love. Over again, over again, it's repeated for us. In John thirteen thirty four, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, for just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And again in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he continues in verse 21 of chapter 14 by saying, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus is relentless in his teaching on the centrality of love in the Christian life in this passage. He says in John 14, 23 through 24, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You see, the subject of love just keeps cropping up in this teaching. It continues in chapter 15, verses 9 through 10, last week's sermon. He focuses in on love, that the love that is present from Him to the believer. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. John obviously got the importance of this message because when he wrote his first letter to his little congregation, his little flock, instructing them, he emphasized love time and again. I want you to hold your place in John 15 and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, that little book near the back of your Bible. <clears throat> And John, the disciple, is a good student. 
He learned well from his master. Probably taking this passage in John 15, which we're looking at together, and rewriting it from his own experience and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 7. I want you to follow along with me. And just look at how many times love keeps coming to the surface. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. One of the most abused passages in all the Bible. I don't have time to preach on it, but maybe one day. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. I don't have to preach on it. If you understand the English language, you just got it, didn't you? It's one of the most, one of the most abused passages. God is love. Why? Because they pay no attention to the next sentence. God manifests His love toward us in that He sent His Son to die for us. It's not just some vague emotion which God feels, some sappy romanticism. God loves through Jesus. And only through Jesus, at least towards us. We don't know His love except through Jesus. But you'll hear people say, oh, God's love, He can't judge. God's love, He can't punish. God's love, He's going to overlook my sin. No. God is love. How do I know He's love? Look at the cross. Because the hell Jesus suffered was in your place. And so you know He loves you. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that God has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever said God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. You might say, why are you preaching on the Holy Spirit? And we keep talking about love this morning. Because you cannot love without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. When I get done this morning, you're going to leave saying, that's absolutely impossible. He's ludicrous. I can't do that. And you're right. You can't. That's why God has given you the Holy Spirit if you're His son, if you're His daughter. He's given you His Holy Spirit so that this love might exist in you and come out through you so that though they have never seen God, they've seen you. Therefore, they've seen a likeness of Him. And that's what He just said. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. Sounds a lot like John 15, doesn't it? By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John just wrote for us, rewrote for us in his own words, the teaching that I'm going to hopefully give you a little better picture of from John 15. It's connected. It's connected. And so we see this in John's writing, that he got the lesson, he understood what Jesus was trying to say. It should be alarming to us that we do not possess this kind of love. This love only exists in the hearts of those who have the Holy Spirit because this type of love is supernatural, not natural. In our passage for this morning, we come face to face with the definition of the love that Christ has for us and the love that we are to have for one another. And I'm going to read that passage, our passage, John 15, 12 through 17, because I think it will bring us to focus on the passage. And the title of the sermon this morning is Jesus Jesus' promised spirit, servants to friends. Look with me at John 15, verse 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. So that whoever you ask, whatever you ask, the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. This is the definition of Christ's love for us and Christ's love in us to the world. Faith is the birthmark of a newborn Christian. But love is the overriding characteristic of a mature follower of Christ. We emphasize faith and we should because without faith, no one can see God. But once faith has marked us as His, made evident the new life which God has put in us. Love quickly overrides everything else in the mature believer's character. June the 18th, 1956. I wasn't born then. And that's not the day I was born. I was born about 20 years, 21 years to be exact later. It was a beautiful summer day. So I've read in Time Magazine. In upstate New York on Scroon Lake, there were lots of people escaping the summer heat, dipping in the cold water, enjoying the fun. On the water that day was a group of college students who had become lifelong friends due to their new life in Christ and their association with the same campus ministry. After skiing for about two hours, a 50-year-old Dawson Trotman 
pulled himself up into the boat exhausted. Now, if you're 50, I don't have to tell you he was exhausted, do I? By all his friends' accounts, he was one of the most physically fit specimens of a human being they'd ever laid eyes on. A former Marine, a hard charger, a man who loved the Lord and loved life. It's key. Two hours. And then he crawls up exhausted into a boat to head back in. Dog tired, he's headed, as time says, to relax with his beautiful wife on the shores of the lake for the rest of the day. As Dawes, which is what his friends called him, was just getting in the boat and kind of settling in, there was a group of students there, and one of them, Aline Beck, had not been in the water all day. And being the observant man that he was, it caught his eye, and so he asked, Can you swim? And after she quickly nodded her head, he changed places with her, putting her in the center of the boat, putting himself between her and the water. They were scampering across the water and soaking in the sun, probably reliving the joys of watching him ski and watching others ski. And they just hit a little boat, a little, a little ripple in the lake. It's a no big deal. But the boat bounced and threw this young lady out, taking Dawson Trotman with her because he had placed himself between her and death. The boat quickly, as quickly as it could, turned to come and pick them up. And Dawson Trotman treaded water, exhausted, hands lifted over the head, keeping her out of the water. They grabbed her and put her in the boat. When they turned to grab him, he was gone. Fifty years old, dead. Well, news spread quick, hit the shore, and Lila, his wife, there, expecting her young, energetic husband to be getting off the boat, knew trouble. And people scampered to her, ran to her frantically. He's gone. Dawes is gone. He's dead. He drowned. They were panicked. The greatest man they ever knew was at the bottom of a lake, dead. Without blinking, Miss Trotman, looking at those young college students, said, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases Him. You might not know who Dawson Trotman is. Some of you do. Some of you don't. That's not what's important. In 1932, he was saved. He was on another drinking binge and was picked up by a policeman. The policeman asked him, what are you, give, what are you doing with your life, son? Don't you want something better for yourself? Yeah, I do. And he flippantly told him to go home, sleep it off, and find something better to consume your time with than drinking. He was hard after Lila at that point, and she took him to church. The preacher said, memorize these ten verses. 
and come back next week. He memorized the ten verses. He came back the next week. He's the only person to memorize the verses. He didn't know the Lord, but he was quick with his wit. He was the valedictorian of his senior class. The next week, he listened to the lesson intently, and he was given six verses to memorize about eternal life. He went home and he memorized them, and he said, while memorizing the Bible, God gripped my heart and saved me. Not knowing any other way to witness, he found a young sailor sat in the car just off the docks and challenged this guy to memorize Scripture. All the people that teach you how to share your faith will never tell you to tell lost people to memorize Scripture. This guy was converted. And through that conversion and some other events, Navigators was born in 1934. Navigators' ministry quickly spread throughout the military. At its peak in the Korean conflict, there were a thousand ships with Navigators on board not only fighting physical battles for the United States, but fighting the spiritual war for the Lord Jesus. Not settled to see soldiers saved, he went to the campuses and began to share his faith in Texas. And the campus ministry was born at Navigators. Out of that ministry, Campus Outreach was birthed in 1977. Dawson Trotman gave his life not when he fell in a lake and saved a little girl from drowning. He gave his life when he put himself between thousands of dying men and said, you will enter hell over my body. He laid down his life for his friends. And there is no greater love than this. Billy Graham at his funeral said Dawson Trotman has impacted more people for Jesus Christ than anyone alive. And you say, I'm not Dawson Trotman. But the thing I want you to grasp is that Dawson Trotman is not exceptional. We make this mistake. I make it. We look at people who are heroes of the faith in our mind and we say, he's exceptional. She's exceptional. They got special gifts that I don't have. And all I'm trying to say is Dawson Trotman simply lived out the truth that we should all be living out every day by the grace of God as it was presented by Jesus Christ in John 15 and exemplified on the cross. Dawson Trotman is not exceptional. He's an average Christian who serves an exceptional God. We spend most of our days excusing ourselves from laboring in the harvest field instead of laboring in the harvest field. He had no seminary training at first. He had nobody to teach him how to share his faith. He just trusted God. He just loved like Christ loved. And he gave himself like Christ, like Christ 
And so, while we look at passages like we're in this morning, and we say, (coughs) that's all well and good for people like Dawson Trotman, all I would say is, Jesus isn't just talking to the Dawson Trotmans or the Billy Grahams or the John Pipers or the, you put in the insert in the name of your favorite guy. He's not just talking to those people. He's talking to you and He's talking to me. And He says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus commands us to love one another. In our text, we see that Jesus doesn't ask, He doesn't request, He doesn't say it's optional, He commands it. This is my commandment, that you love one another. And then in verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. The focus, the intent of Jesus in this passage is to command us to love one another. So when you won't share your faith, and I won't share my faith, I won't preach the gospel to my neighbor. What I'm saying is, I don't love you. I can excuse it any way I like. I can say it's not the right time. The person doesn't know me that well. I can say it's uncomfortable. I don't want to make them uncomfortable. But the reality is, I don't love them. I'm good at making excuses. I'm awful at loving people. Awful at it. He's not asking us to. He's commanding us to love one another. And then he doesn't stop. He tells us what that love looks like. He continues <coughs> to tell us that this love that is for one another is the love I have for you. Do you see that in the second part of verse 12? He's not saying love them like others love. He's saying love them like I love. Do you truly love Christ? That's the question I walked away with after studying this week. It's one question I walked away with. Do I really love Jesus? I mean, I say I do. But if you just took my words from me and looked at the panorama of my life, would you say, that guy loves Jesus? Do you truly love one another? I mean, let's just for a second cut the rest of the world out. There's just maybe 120 people sitting in this room. Is there really one other person in this room that you really love the way Christ loves you? Just one other person in this room. Now take your, friend, your, take your family away. Is there somebody outside your family that you love the way Christ has loved you? Because see, I think that there's a direct correlation 
between the answer to that question and the first question, do you love Jesus? I think that not because I dreamed it up, but because that's what the verse says. Look at it closely. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Like I loved you. And 1 John, which we read earlier, says, if you don't do this, you don't love Christ. You're just saying you love Jesus, but you don't really love Jesus. So, do we really love Jesus, or do we just like to talk about loving Jesus? And the answer to that question comes from understanding whether we love one another or not. If we don't love one another, who we see, who we touch, who we eat with, who we have commonality with then there's no way we can love God. Secondly, in this text, Jesus exemplifies love for one another. So, I ask the question, do you love each other? Now Jesus is going to tell us how love lo- or what love looks like. We see what love is like by the death of Christ on the cross. Verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. That could be taken, I'm sure, in other ways. But I can't help but think that as he's getting ready to go out the door of the upper room, or possibly is already outside the door of the upper room and has walked through the temple and is headed through the Kidron Valley and up on to the mountain to pray, and knowing he's going to die in a short few hours, I can't help but think that when he says, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friend, that he's not just talking about some general random event that could happen, He's talking about the cross. And so if he says, this is the commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, there's no other context to put that in except the cross. Jesus loved us by dying on the cross. And so when we say we love one another, are we saying that we are dying daily for one another? If not, then do we really love Christ? Now you see why I said, you leave here saying, and I leave here saying, I, I cannot do this. And that's the position God wants us in. He wants us to say, and repent, and confess, I tried, and I failed. I can't love this way. Please give me this kind of love. God loves to answer those prayers. We're going to get to that in our text. I used to think, up to this week, I really did. Sometimes I think, when I study, I think Jesus and Paul are kind of scatterbrained at times. I mean that reverently. I mean, they're teaching along. Don't don't act like if you've read the Bible, don't act like it had happened to you. And I'm the only oddball up here. You'd be reading along and something just all of a sudden seems totally out of place. That happens in this text. I mean, where does Jesus come out? He comes from left field with, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. What are you talking about prayer for? Because God loves to answer prayers for those who are praying, God, I can't. Please do it for me. 
God will never answer prayers that are worded and put in verbiage like, God, I want to do. But He will always answer, God, I can't do. Please do for me. Let that sunk in for a minute. Because the first point of this message, you may have been thinking, this is another one of those buck up, try harder messages about loving each other. And I want you to get right now to the point where you say, He ain't telling us to go do it. He's saying we can't do it. God has to do it. We must be dependent on God for this kind of love. This greater love, which no man has, than that he lays down his life for his friend. Jesus died, not just died physically, he died spiritually. Hard concept. The definition of death is separation. Physical death is when your spirit is separated from your physical body. That's physical death. Okay? On the cross, Jesus died physically, but he also died spiritually. How do we know? Because he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God laid on God the punishment due our sin, which is not just physical death, but spiritual separation from God. Jesus suffered hell for you and for me. That's how he loved. So now the introductory story is more than a tearjerker. You understand why I said Dawson Trotman put himself between a young lady and the water because he put himself between death and the young lady. And he did the same thing in his life with thousands of college students and thousands of military men training others to do the same thing. Put yourself between the gates of hell and these people and call them to Jesus Christ. And if they go to hell, if they desire to go to hell, let them run over you to get there. And my life looks a lot like I stand to the side and cheer people into hell. I stand to the side and say, you get what you deserve. And that's because I'm trying to love out of my own strength. And God doesn't ask for that. He says, I supply everything that I require. Love like I love. I can't. Good. Ask Him. And He will love in and through you the way He loved you. It's humanly impossible. What with God, all things are possible. And He goes a step further showing us what His love looks like because He moves us from servants to friends. He moves us in our category from being mere servants to being friends. And he justifies that by saying, you, a friend knows what the master is doing, but a servant does not. I haven't left you guessing about what I'm doing. I guess one of the most disturbing things about the question, where was God, and you fill in the blank, when such and such happened, or when this... I guess the... I guess the thing that bothers me most when I ask it and when I hear other people asking it is this. 
It's that it reveals in us that we are not God's friend because God has revealed to His friends what He's doing. He's bringing glory to Himself. The only answer when tragedy strikes is God is in heaven and He does whatever pleases Him. And so my husband's death pleases Him. The twin towers crumbling and falling, killing 3,000 people, it pleased Him. And beyond that, I'm tampering with things that I cannot know and I have no right to know. Leave it there. God has told us. Jesus has not kept us in the blind about what He's doing. I'm about my Father's plan. I'm going to die on the cross. I've told you I'm going to die on the cross. I've told you because you're not mere servants. You're my friends. And He said the same thing through the epistles and through the Gospels and through the Old Testament. He's continually pointed out to us that His plan is at work. And He does whatever He pleases. And so every intricate detail of your life which you don't think has gone right has gone according to His sovereign plan. And the fact that I don't understand the details of it doesn't really matter in the end. We are Christ's friends, not His mere servants. This, along with James saying that God called Abraham his friend, are the only passages where this is it's an amazing statement that God would call us friends because he loves us and he gave himself for us and he calls us and commands us to that same love for one another. We're Christ's friends because we obey his commands. I mean, that's what he says right here in verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. There are those who would like to excuse that. They would like to do away with that. Who would like to say it doesn't matter how you live your life. Just believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, it matters. It will change your life. And your life will look a lot like his. You'll begin to love the way he loves. Jesus, finally, sovereignly, sovereignly chose and appointed us to bear fruit in love. Jesus chose and appointed us to bear fruit in love. We are chosen by God. You may not like it, but it's not stated as a question. Again, it's stated very directly. You did not choose me. I chose you. I know that that bothers. I know that ruffles feathers. I know that causes discomfort. But it doesn't change the reality. He sovereignly chose us. But sometimes our church, unlike a lot of other churches, glories in that choosing. But we miss the last half of the verse. A lot of times, other churches miss the front half. They think they're just doing it themselves. And we miss the last half. Look what it says. 
Because He not only chose us, but He sovereignly appointed us to evangelize. You did not choose me, I chose you. And appointed you to go. <clears throat> the word, the construction here, leaves no room for doubt that we are to be going and telling, going and doing as Christ has done. We're super and hypercritical of those who would deny the sovereignty of God in salvation. But we give ourselves a pass on the fact that we don't share the gospel all that much. And we can excuse that just like they excuse a denial of sovereignty. But the reality is we're denying half of the truth. God is sovereign in His election. And He has called us sovereignly to go and find and seek and be on the same mission He was on. Seeking and finding the lost. There's no way to excuse ourselves. Because if we love like He loved us, we will do what He did. Give our life that others might know Him. He sovereignly chose us. He sovereignly appointed us. He didn't ask us. He just said, you go and be witnesses, evangelize. And we're chosen so that we bear eternal fruit. Verse 16 goes on and says, <coughs> You've been chosen and you need to go and bear fruit. Not only those spiritual fruits which we talked of last week, but those bring about those fruits which I've been speaking about, about evangelism and discipleship. The spiritual fruits bring about the tangible reality of people being saved and people being one and people being discipled. And then we're given the unlimited access to the Father. Unlimited access. Look what he says. You didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Don't qualify it. Don't change it. Don't run from it. It is what it is. When you live a life abiding in Christ, being loved by Him and loving others the way He has loved you, ask whatever you will in the name of Jesus and the Father will give it. It doesn't need any caveats. And you say, well, then, what keeps us from asking for a Lamborghini? What keeps us from asking for a bigger house? What keeps us from asking for upturning the economy so we can retire? What, at, what keeps us from asking? Whatever. You fill the blank in with your motives. Well, because at that point, you are not, you cannot be asking in the name of Christ. It's impossible.
And if you're asking in the name of Christ, He puts no limits on what He will do. We run from it. But I just ask this question. Are you bearing eternal fruit? I'm going to give you a moment just to examine your life as we close. There's no altar call. Nobody's asking you to join anything. Sign a card. Pray a prayer. But I am asking you to do this. Answer the question, are you bearing eternal fruit? And secondly, are you living in such a way by the grace of God that you can ask anything by the name of Christ and the Father will give it to you? Let's pray. Father,